there is a benefit to waxing your chain for training as well. And even if you're not concerned with how fast you're riding when you're training, and that benefit is that you could save money on your drivetrain by not having to replace your chain, chain rings, and cassette so often. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and today we're talking fasted riding, training through sickness, bottom bracket efficiency, wax chains, and who's a good candidate for coaching and how we at Ignition go about pairing you with the coach that's most fitting. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. If you haven't yet tried any of their endurance sports-specific formulated nutrition products, then head over to flowformulas.com today and use the discount code IgnitionPodcast for 10% off your next order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions or feedback for the show, send that to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, The Matchbox Podcast, or head over to Instagram and send us a DM. All right, let's get into it. All right, back with some more listener questions today, and we're just going to dive into it. So this is a, a hot topic. It seems to like be cyclical. It's like it comes into the headlines and then it fades away for a while, comes back around and it seems like people are buzzwording about fasted training again. So Dylan, <laughs> I know you've talked about this probably endlessly. I have two videos on it. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're going to have a podcast about it. So I've talked me, about it on the podcast before as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me read this question. This comes from Massimo D. I says, mm-hmm. is fasted training for zone two rides, so not interval or hard efforts, a good thing? Or is it better to do all rides, including zone two, in a fed state? Okay. So for those who have not watched my videos and have not heard me talk about this on the podcast, I'll do a quick recap of the research and yeah you're exactly right about this topic i I think that it's just that fasting in general seems to be pretty popular right now i was telling you guys that i feel like you know i listen to a number of different podcasts and i feel like fasting just in general maybe whether it's for athletic performance or health or or whatever seems to be coming up over and over again i'm not making any claims about fasting for health right now uh, or fasting for weight loss. This is just the research that I've done on fasting for cycling performance specifically. So the when they do these studies where they have people just fast for every single ride that they do, usually the results aren't great because that means that these people are fasting for low-intensity rides, high-intensity rides, whatever. Um, and you can imagine why that would be a bad thing because they're not fueling themselves for the workouts that really matter. However, there is, uh, there is this protocol called sleep low, which has been studied and has actually decent results. And I've never personally tried this because it sounds awful. Um, but basically the sleep low protocol is where you do a high intensity workout in the afternoon or late in the day, And then instead of replenishing your lost glycogen stores from that workout, you, you know, maybe, maybe you replenish protein and fat, but you try to keep carbohydrates to a minimum so that your glycogen stores are low. You basically go to bed low glycogen, right? (laughs) Which for a lot of people is hard to do. Um, 
But anyway, you go to bed low glycogen, you wake up the next morning and you do a fasted endurance ride, low intensity ride. And they there have there has been research on this protocol in particular and it it actually shows decent results like the the riders that did this protocol had better performance outcomes than riders that didn't that being said in practicality i just i i feel like i think that your sleep it depends on who you are because some people don't have any problem fasting in the morning like they don't crave breakfast um they don't you know some people naturally just aren't hungry until lunchtime you know and then some people the first thing they want to do when they wake up is eat food. Um, and this is the point that I've made every time I've made a fasted video is I, you know, it probably depends on, on which kind of person you are. I I don't necessarily see any problem with doing zone two rides in the morning fasted. If you, you know, if you don't want to eat breakfast, but any time that I've, and, and I'm, I'm the kind of person that needs breakfast in the morning. Any time that I have tried to do fasted training, which has been a number of times, I, I'm so insanely hungry when I get back. I'm hungry on my ride. Like all I can think about while I'm riding is food. And then when I get back from my ride, I just, it feels like I, I overeat and then I'm bloated. And it's like, it's like, what did I accomplish here? Like I, I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's one of those things where, okay, there's research pointing to the fact that maybe doing some zone two rides fasted could be beneficial. And I think maybe for some people it could be, but in, in practicality and in, you know, everyday life in, in the real world, personally, I just haven't, I I just haven't found it to be useful. Um, again, so, so Dylan, so with that, with that, you know, sleep low protocol, what is, what is the performance context for which they're, they're measuring, um, in comparing the athletes? Like, is it a 40 K time trial? Um, is it a max 20 minute effort? Uh, is it a five five hour, you know, century ride? I mean, I wish that I had the study in front of me. Um, cause then I could tell you, but usually they test multiple things. Like they don't just test one thing. Okay. And usually it's it's like time to exhaustion at a certain power output or or uh you know um they they're testing blood lactate uh that sort of thing like power at four millimolar blood lactate see if that went up or went down or um they're testing multiple things you know they're they're measuring vo two so i I don't know because it's been it's been probably two years since I made the last fasted training video um but they're they're testing multiple things, and I, I guess the question that you're getting at is, did it help with more endurance oriented cycling, or did it help also help with maybe you know five minute power, which is obviously you know VO two max or higher power outputs? And right. I right. I honestly can't recall. Okay, yeah. I just think, sorry guys, you're going to have to bear with me with my voice here, but someone who argues in favor of the benefit of fasted training might think this is oversimplistic, but I just think if you're training for optimal performance in an event that you know you're going to be able to be in a fed state, what is the point? Mm-hmm. Well, so I, yeah, I agree with that. And actually there's research that backs that up that says that if you are constantly training either in a, you know, a ketogenic state or a fasted state, 
a state where you're not using carbohydrates for energy, then when you go to use carbohydrates for energy on race day, you know, your body isn't used to doing that and, and your gut isn't able to handle these carbohydrates and you're not able to utilize these carbohydrates to their full potential. So, yeah. And, and I think we've talked about this maybe the last couple of shows or one, one of the, one of the last few shows, but like right now, Ironman triathlon is seeing just a huge Im- improvement in performance um, for men's and women's fields at the, at the elite level like record, you know, course records being broken, um, world records mm-hmm. being broken. And they're all alluding to, to it coming from improvements across the board in nutrition. Mm-hmm. Triathlon was also a huge scene for the, the ketogenic diet, you know, yeah. five years ago. Um, so where, I mean, what, where's, what, what, I don't, I feel like psych, uh, high level cyclists didn't necessarily fall into that trap. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but yeah, I mean, team sky, you know, they, they were kind of pushing that during one or two of the, uh, years with the tour. Um, when, when, you know, Chris Froome was winning, um, you know, but I think (laughs) they, they were pretty transparent that it's, it's not an easy thing to accomplish a ketogenic state while training. Sure, and I think I think their thing was more periodized, uh, you know, periodized nutrition, if you will. Like they had low carbohydrate days, high carbohydrate days, and they're certainly not racing on low carbohydrates. Correct. Yep. So, um, but yeah. So, anyways, I mean, you know, we when when the ketogenic phase was was going on within triathlon, we were not seeing nearly the amount of performance improvements as we've been seeing with the increase in, uh, you know, specifically carbohydrate intake over the last two to three years. Um, and they're, they're pushing the envelope probably more than anyone in endurance sports right now. Um, sure. you know, they're, they're, they're on the bike, at least, you know, they're, they're pushing 150 plus grams of carbs an hour. Um, which for them, I mean, they're only on the bike for four hours, but that's, you know, got to fuel their replenish their swim and kind of, you know, pre-fuel their run. But, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that though, that, you know, it's, it's truly the, the fed state that's leading to improvements in performance. And we're talking about, you know, ultra long endurance events. Sure. The other thing I'll say too, is that, um, you know, the, the theory behind fasted training in the first place is that if you, you know, if you are training in, in a low carbohydrate state, then you're teaching your body to utilize fat as a fuel source more. I, I, I would argue that you can also do that by doing long rides. I mean, when you do a long ride towards the end of the ride, your uh, your glycogen stores are depleted, and you are riding in a in a low glycogen, low carbohydrate state. Even though you ate breakfast and you've been eating carbohydrates throughout the ride, it's just one more reason to add long rides into your training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're you're talking like you know five plus hours. Well, sure. I mean, long ride is all relative, right? For for a for a world tour pro road racer, five hours is probably a normal day on the bike. For mm-hmm. for you know somebody who rides six hours a week, uh, maybe it's just three hours. Mm-hmm. You know? All right. Anything else on fasted training here? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm sure we'll answer okay. that question again in <laughs> yeah. two more in like <laughs> two months. Yep. Uh, okay, so this next one uh, is talking about training through sickness, which I think is pretty relevant for both of you guys right now. 
Um, yes. So this one comes from actually one of our ignition coaches, uh, Curtis Tolson. He says, mm-hmm. how should coaches maneuver sickness with their athletes? Or basically, what are the guidelines for training while sick? Sure. Um, Caitlin, you want to start with this one? I was just going to say my opinion has changed over the years because it just mm-hmm. feels like we are living in a different world with the colds that are that are going around. It's just it's not the same as it used to be. It's not you sure. you know you get it and you kick it in three days. These things like just attack your respiratory system and they can linger. You know it used to be said if it's not if it's a if it's simply above the neck, so you know congestion and pressure in the head, then um, you're fine if it's not into your chest. But mm-hmm. I've pushed that theory before and went out for an endurance ride because I was like, oh, I'm just dealing with some drainage and some sinus stuff. And then, you know, the next couple of days it was a nasty cough. So I just don't think it's worth pushing it when you're going to end up causing it to linger an extra two weeks and lose more time in the end. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. always been my kind of my thinking on it is just let the you should be almost back to 100%, basically 100% by the time you start training again. That being said, I just got super sick with the flu recently, and I didn't follow my own advice because it was getting to the point where it was ridiculous how how much time I was taking off the bike. I took a full week where I didn't ride at all, and then I was like, I don't want to. And then I st- and then for the next two weeks, I did basically just recovery rides at like an hour. Uh, I think I put in like three hours and four hours, which is considering the volume I usually do is a fraction of the volume I usually do. And then it was just like, I can't. And I still had a sore throat. And I was like, I can't just take two months off the bike. This is this is getting ridiculous. So I went through my first whole base phase, you know, three weeks with a sore throat. Uh, and it wasn't bad. It was a very minor sore throat, but, um, it just got to the point where I was, I was like, I I can't afford to take this much time off the bike. It's just getting ridiculous. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a tricky thing. And, and whenever somebody, I, I never, whenever I get sick with a cold or a, you know, covid for that matter or the flu or something like that it's at least a week it's always at least seven days sometimes it's longer but it's never like three days and i kick it i don't understand these people who are like oh yeah i got a cold uh two days ago but i'm good now uh (laughs) i mean i you know maybe people have better immune systems than i do but i don't know if i if i end up getting a cold i'm usually just like yeah it's it's gonna be a week off the bike it is what it is Yeah. And if you're taking time off the bike, that's not to say that you can't do anything and you have to sit on the couch and do nothing. I mean, Mm -hmm. a little bit of blood flow is good. So do some yoga, do some, some really light core work, um, get out, you know, walk your dog a few extra times that day, um, just to get the fresh air and the blood flow. But, um, if you're not going to ride, give your body every chance to thrive. So that's also, you know, when you go out, don't get a glass of wine, like, um, be, you know, stay on top of your fluid intake. And I think still be drinking, you know, a bottle of scratch per day because you don't want to flush out all your electrolytes. Um, just be checking all the boxes, getting eight hours at least of sleep per night. Just the easy stuff. Yeah. So I, I've, I've done quite a bit of research on this. Um, you know, just 
for my own experiences and also the athletes that I coach. And most of the conclusions, you know, everything kind of revolves around what is going to be a more immune supporting, right? Um, Cause at the end of the day, the only way you're going to kick it is if, is by your immune system doing its job and um, you know, ridding of all the toxins. So the, a lot of the, you know, the majority of the conclusions that I found say that, you know, high intensity work actually won't compromise your immune system. It's, it's actually duration that will compromise your immune system. So, you know, pushing beyond two to three hours, that's really where your immune system is going to start to, uh, kind of sink into a suppressed state. So, you know, I, I always advise my athletes, like if, you know, if we're going to do any workouts while you're sick, you know, or, you know, coming out of sickness, let's keep them short. Um, high intensity actually has shown to increase immune, your immune, uh, system support in, in certain cases. Um, if you're so sick that you can't actually even do a workout, then it's probably not going to be very effective. Um, but doing something like Caitlin saying is, is probably going to be better than nothing. Um, in most cases, having some form of activity will at least, um, at, at the very least, it will kind of maintain your immune system's health. Um, so, but, you know, but, but getting in one or two high intensity, as long as it's like an hour or less, if you can handle it, uh, a lot of times that can, that can actually help get through the, the, the sickness phase as well. Um, but again, it's just, it just all kind of depends on what, what your personal symptoms are. You know, if you're getting on the bike and you're trying to do, uh, you know, threshold intervals and you can't breathe because you've, you know, got so much, you know, congestion in your lungs and like, that's not going to be good. Um, but you know, there, there've been times where like, you know, I've had a little bit of chest congestion and by the end of like a little bit higher intensity workout, I've actually cleared out a lot of it. You know, sometimes it kind of takes pushing, pushing the lungs a little bit, um, to help clear some of that out. But that's that, but that the main takeaway that, you know, that I've found is that really it's avoiding longer duration exercise. You know, that most studies say over two hours, but it kind of depends on what your train state is. Um, you know, but, but yeah, trying to keep it, I usually just for conservative sake, just say an hour or less. Yeah. Interesting. And then we should touch on if it comes to the point where you need to take antibiotics, um, Antibiotics are terrible, but sometimes they're unavoidable and you need them. But um, while you're taking the antibiotics, it is also important to be taking a probiotic because antibiotics kill all of the, they kill everything, good and bad bacteria in your gut. And we know, you know, it's just been all over in research how important gut health is. Um, So be taking probiotic, eating, you know, fermented foods, things like sauerkraut, kimchi are really good for your gut. Um, and then as soon as you're, you're off of those antibiotics, continue with that as well. It's just good to include that in your everyday diet anyway. So yeah, so Caitlin, so if you're, if you normally take, you know, a daily dose of probiotics or, you know, um, like you said, you know, kimchi or sauerkraut or something like that, do you, would you recommend increasing that intake while you're on those antibiotics or just kind of maintaining that? Um, that's a good point. I haven't looked into it, but I would think increasing it actually, um, because if you're you're killing whatever is going into your gut anyway, um, it probably wouldn't hurt to up that. Okay, cool. Okay, so this next one, uh, Caitlin, comes from one of your athletes, Mike. Um, he's asking about, he says, in one of your older podcasts, you mentioned using oil in your bottom bracket bearings. I was wondering if you have any more details on that. Thanks, Mike. What? So I, I don't know what this is referring to. I don't know. I don't know if you had mentioned either. this. 
oil. Uh, is he talking about like the viscosity of the grease and how efficient your bottom bracket is? I'm assuming maybe. Um, yeah, I would guess it's this something is along this those is lines. like one of the this is like a question for the marginal gains versus maximal gains episode that we plan on doing at right. some point. Right. So yeah. So I mean, I guess I'll talk. I I don't know specifically what you're referring to, but I'm assuming <laughs> that if you're asking us about it, this isn't like a bike mechanic question. This is a, a bottom bracket efficiency question. Because this is not a bike mechanic podcast. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so there's there's different viscosity greases um, or or light oil that you can use to lubricate lubricate your bottom bracket bearings, and the viscosity will uh, change how efficient your bottom bracket is. So. For example, stock Shimano and SRAM bottom brackets, they want those things to last forever because if they sell those thing if they sell those with, you know, low viscosity grease or low viscosity grease or light oil, you know, the the bearings are going to be shot in like a month and people are going to be pissed and write a bunch of terrible reviews and people are not going to buy their stuff. Right, right? That's more important to them than saving half a watt. Um so, you know, the, those, those bottom brackets are generally less efficient than something, you know, more bougie like ceramic speed, which tends to use uh, ceramic speed actually has different viscosity greases that you can choose from. Um, they've got like a race day one all the way up to extreme muddy conditions or whatever, but um, and you can choose which one you want to use. And obviously the lighter it is, the more efficient your bottom bracket is. When, when you say choose, like that means when you're purchasing the bottom bracket. So like if you wanted I to don't know, I don't know if it's when you're purchasing it, but when their ceramic speed in particular is big on maintenance and maintenancing your bottom bracket frequently. And so you can purchase different viscosity greases or oils straight from ceramic speed. And so if you want to put the race day, uh, you know, the race day stuff in your bottom bracket for race day, you can do that. Or you can just have the high durability stuff in there all the time if you're not into that. Um, so I hope this is answering your question. But yeah, I mean, if you're and if you're wanting to, I, I actually am having um Adam from Zero Friction Cycling on my YouTube channel uh, in the near future. I already did the interview with him. I asked him about bottom bracket efficiency. Um, and I was like, how much, I, I asked him, I was like, how much, how many watts can somebody save by going from like a standard bottom bracket to some really, you know, high end ceramic bearing bottom bracket? And his answer, I believe, I should go back and check. I think he said on the order of like half a watt. So some people that matters, some people that doesn't matter. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's definitely falls into the marginal gains category, right? Yeah. But it feels well, nice. Mike though. is all about that. Mike is a uh, race engineer for a NASCAR cool. team. Yeah. So I mean, if he's a, if yeah, he's a race engineer, cool. if he's a race engineer for a NASCAR team, it sounds like he falls into the marginal gains category and he sounds like the for kind sure. of person that's going to be using race day grease for race day. And I, I encourage that. I mean, I'm I'm all about that. So yeah. So so in that case, you would want to get a bottom bracket that can be serviced. 
Because a lot of times, like in yeah. standard yeah. SRAM or Shimano bottom bracket, like you can't you can't access like like there's no oil port or anything that you can like sure. regrease it. Yeah. And I want to emphasize the f- the fact that I'm not a bike mechanic here. Sometimes, sometimes people, you know, because I have a cycling channel, people ask me like very technical bike mechanic related questions, and I'm like, I'm not a I'm not a bike mechanic, <laughs> uh, and this is not a bike mechanic channel. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so you would uh, you would want to go with a higher end bottom bracket in the first place, and you you would want to see what you know. You'd want to research different different grease or oil options to see what the the lightest that you can go with is. And I would say that if whatever race you're doing, if it's going to be raining or if it's going to be muddy, uh, you may not put the race day stuff in there because, like, it may not even last the entire race. <laughs> you know what I mean? It depends on mm-hmm. what what exactly it is, what exact product we're talking about, but. You know, especially for a long race like Unbound or something like like Unbound this past year, your bottom bracket wouldn't even make it through the whole thing if you used the lightest oil possible. That would have been the fastest on the starting line. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, so Mike, if you're if you're interested in more information about marginal gains, maybe head over to the Marginal Gains podcast because they they do talk about that. I mean, that's that's the name of the podcast. <laughs> um, if you're if you're interested in like bike mechanics stuff, uh, I have a friend who hosts the Just Riding Along show, and they talk all about bike mechanics stuff. So that's a good one. Um, I, I enjoy but, talking about marginal gains, but I think sometimes it gets a little bit out of the scope of uh, the Matchbox yeah. podcast. Yep. Um, okay. Well, on that note, Jaden Blake wants to know about waxed chains. <laughs> <laughs> It's basically is the marginal gains podcast yeah he says hey all question for you on wax chains who uses them for races um does anyone use them for training as well uh i only uses waxed chains uh for those that use them do you wax it yourself or do you send it in somewhere to have a business wax them for you mm. we use wax chains and right now it's only race chains but now we're coming into van life, so we have some more time on our hands. Um, we're going to be waxing all of our chains. So we do it nice. ourselves, buy the wax online, little little blocks of wax, and have a little mini crock pot. And do you use, like, uh, cycling-specific wax, or do you just use, like, paraffin, like, generic wax? Um, I think it is cycling-specific. Um, I'm not totally sure. Blaine orders it, so I'm going to have to look at the orders. <laughs> and and Adam, what do you use? Chain loop. <laughs> I've never used a wax chain. Even okay. even there was one time I think it was at Big Sugar where I came over to your guys' house and you were having like a chain a waxing, waxing party. party. Yeah, and I was like, I was like, I, I don't. What was the guy's name from? Travis. Sipo? Travis. Yeah, I was like, Travis, yeah. dude, I don't, I don't, I don't need to waste any more of your time. I'll just loop my <laughs> chain tomorrow. It'll be fine. Yeah. So I, I I do know that it's more than half a watt though. Well, like, it depends on what you're starting from, <laughs> right? Because there are like Silka's Silka Synerg- Synergetic Lube is not a wax-based lube, and it's actually extremely fast. Like it's probably within a watt of of most like you know hot melt wax lubes, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's very fast. And if you're gonna go with if you're gonna go that route, because you just can't stand the thought of waxing anything then i would probably go with that um but 
So uh, this person's question was, you know, who do you wax for race day? And then is there any point to waxing not for race day, just for training? And so obviously waxing your chain for race day is beneficial because it's faster. And depending on what you're starting with, it could be four or five watts faster. If you're starting with like a really slow lube, Um, you could, you could get four or five watts out of waxing your chain. There is a benefit to waxing your chain for training as well. And even if you're not concerned with how fast you're riding when you're training, and that benefit is that you could save money on your drivetrain by not having to replace your chain, chain rings, and cassette so often. Um, So if you think about it, increasing the amount of friction in your chain both slows you down and it it uh, speeds up the wear the wear rate of the chain at the same time. So having an efficient chain is both faster and your chain will last much longer. And uh, zero friction cycling has shown this that you know you could if you choose the worst chain lube possible on the market versus the you know the best wax chain. I mean your chain could last like three times as long, four times as long if you if you're waxing your chain. So that would be the benefit of using a wax chain in training um, is that, you you know, you just don't have to replace your drivetrain parts as frequently. Do you notice any like change in like shifting performance at all from a regular chain to a wax chain? Mm, no, not no, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, I will say that I in in the winter, <laughs> I've just been using Silka Synergetic because I just get a chain from the bike shop and I don't want to be bothered with uh like honestly the worst part is not waxing it the worst part is removing the factory grease which is can is kind of a process in itself and and is in my opinion more of a pain and I'm just like I'm going to have to replace this chain in 2 months anyway I'm just going to throw Silka Synergetic on it and call it good uh, but when we get to when we get to race season, I'll be on like I'll be on a wax chain all the time, both for training well, and, and racing. From from what I've heard, like a wax chain, like if you if it runs out of wax, like it's pretty useless, right? Like if if you, yeah. you like you can ride a, a chain that's like a little bit low on lube, or like you haven't lubed it for a couple weeks, like it it's not going to be pleasant. But you could still do it. But like a wax chain, I've heard like once it runs out of wax, it's like stiff as a board like it's like the friction gets super high i mean that's the i mean that's the case with any lube i mean if it if the whatever lubricant you have in there if it if it comes out of the chain your chain is going to feel like crap um i mean a lot of a lot of people like people at silka and zero friction cycling claim that wax wax lasts longer and in poor conditions wax is actually preferable because um it's harder for contaminants to get into a wax chain because if it's a if it's an oil based lubricant, then you know dirt is coming in and it's just kind of mixing with the oil, and then you kind of have an oil and dirt mixture, which isn't as fast as when it was just oil. Versus if you've got wax, first of all, when you're pedaling, it's kind of like you know the wax the wax is kind of purging itself out of the chain. Right. So so any dirt that might be getting in there is kind of being purged out. And also it's much harder for dirt to penetrate thick wax than it is oil. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yep. And if it's been a long time since we waxed our chains, we'll top it off with the um shoot, what is it? The UFO ceramic mm-hmm. speed drip 
That stuff's really good too. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked it up. It's the molten molten speed wax. Yep. It's a yeah, it's a good option. Oh yeah. Sweet. I've seen that stuff. Um all right. Where are we at? Do we want wanna tackle one more? Let's do sure. it. Sure. Okay. Let's get away from these uh gear related questions. <laughs> um could, I only say that because there is one more gear related question that we could do, but yeah. Um, not not that we don't like gear related questions, but this is a training podcast. We we have to yeah. remember that. <laughs> well, yeah, Ben, I'm sorry. We'll we'll cover your your uh, question next week. Uh, mm-hmm. So this one comes from Mark. He's asking about uh, coaching candidates. So he says, "Hi there, guys. Great podcast, and thanks for the content. I wanted to see if there is a differentiator between people that are a good or bad candidate for coaching. I'm a lifelong cyclist and racer. He races mountain bike, gravel, road." cyclocross Zwift, urban fixie races, so like alley cat races. Um, and he seems to have trouble following online plans like Trainer Road or other pre-built uh, plans. Mm-hmm. And really any plans at all due to time, motivation, and just riding how I feel sometimes. I just have resigned myself to uh, more consistent riding year-round. I get two high-intensity interval training days in per week, I listen to guys like you and read up on training as much as possible. To paint a picture, I'm about a 10 to 12 hour a week athlete. I lift once a week. I'm good for seven to 8,000 miles a year, which that's a lot. And five to 600 hours yeah, annually. It's impressive. Also it's a impressive lot. that he's getting seven to 8,000 miles a year with 10 to 12 hours per week of training. Yeah. I, I, like, I think I only he, got 8,000 miles last year. I know. It's like, is he only riding on the road at fairly high speed? Maybe. Yeah. Or, or anyway. Zwift. Zwift at 25 miles an hour. I don't know. <laughs> um, he races about two, to- two dozen times a year across all these disciplines. Uh, but he says, podiums are rare and getting dropped on group rides is common. I feel like I've hit a plateau in my fitness the past few years and or I'm just aging. He says he's 54 years old. And he yeah. thinks he's starting to think that maybe getting a coach could be a good answer. Do you have any insight for me and your listeners on when it's a good time to tap a coach on the shoulder versus continuing self-coaching in this era where athletes have access to such good content, online platforms, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks. Mark in D.C. Mark in D.C. Maybe he knows me from back when I lived in D.C. Maybe. What's his full name? We don't have to say his full name. I don't Mark. know if he wants it. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> all, all I saw, all, all he put in his signature was Mark from D.C. Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, there's... Uh, there's good coaches and bad coaches out there, so it can be difficult to kind of parse out which ones are good and bad. Um, and I will say too that that some people maybe they have um, maybe they're really smart and they know a lot about training, but they don't have great personal skills, which you need. And maybe there are some people that have great personal skills, but they their knowledge of training is lacking. Um, and so. You know, a good coach kind of needs a mixture of both. Yeah. So, so let's let's kind of tackle this from two 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 sort of angles. So, first one being let's let's talk about which athletes are good candidates for receiving coaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to say anyone, but I mean, as <laughs> yes. long as you have some direction and some goal, you're going to be a good person to work with if you're goal oriented, um, if you're, that's not to say that we, you know, a coach won't be beneficial if you just have this overarching goal of wanting to get better. Um, a coach may help you, 
you know, kind of guide that and give you direction. Um, but if you're someone who likes to do five different activities, that's great. Um, but if you're not willing to, um, I don't know, say you like to, and not, not all cycling disciplines, like, you know, totally unrelated things like climbing and skiing in the backcountry and running and swimming. Um, a cycling coach is going to be, you know, might have some challenge there. Um, I don't know. What do you guys well, think? I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say any cyclist could, could benefit from a cycling coach. I think it gets, you might want to look for, so when I, when I get people asking about me being their coach or, you know, an ignition coach being their coach for triathlon, I usually say, you know, we know a lot about cycling, but you know, we're not triathlon coaches. So maybe you should get a triathlon specific coach. Same thing. If somebody came to me for, I don't know, cross country skiing or, or something like that. But if you're, if you're a site and this guy's a cyclist, he's not, he's not doing these other sports. If you're a cyclist, I really think that any level can benefit from a coach. I do get emails sometimes from people saying, Oh, like, I don't feel like I'm fit enough for a coach just yet. So, you know, I'll stick with your training plans. And by the way, I sell, you know, I sell pre-made training plans and, and at ignition, you know, we have coaching. So, I really think that the deciding factor, whether you should go with a pre-made training plan or coaching is what your budget is for, for training, because a coaching is always going to be better than a pre-made plan because a pre-made plan is pre-made and there's no feedback. And it's like, if you get sick or you miss a workout because of, you know, family obligations or whatever, there's no adjustment to the plan. You can't talk with your coach about, you know, if the, if you find that the plan is too difficult, it can't be, you know, adjusted down. If you find that the plan is too easy, it can't be adjusted up. It's just pre-made and, and, you know, it is what it is, but a coach can do all of those things for you. A coach can, um, can take your feedback and, and, you know, switch the, switch the plan up based on your feedback. Um, so, the question, the question isn't really, you know, am I at a high enough fitness level to, I don't know, deserve a coach. It's, it's what is your budget for training? Yeah. And, or at any, Oh, go ahead, Caitlin. I was just going to say, and, or any point at which you've hit a plateau, that might be a sign that you need an outside eye looking at your training. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree with both that or both those statements. Um, you know, I, I would, I would add one disclaimer, uh, a lot of people think that, you know, if they've been on a pre-made training plan and then they get into a relationship with a coach, they expect that the training plan itself is going to look vastly different than the plan that they were following from a pre-built plan. Um, and while like the arrangement may look different, a lot of the content is going to be very similar. Um, it's having access to the coach as a resource, which is what makes the coaching relationship very valuable. Um, having mm-hmm. access to the additional knowledge on a day-to-day basis, someone there analyzing your, your workouts each day and, and, you know, modifying the plan to kind of, you know, fit based on what feedback they're getting from you and in, in your workout data. Um, and then, you know, adjusting things on the fly or, you know, in advance or whatever. Um, that's where like the, the, the value of coaching comes in. It's not like we're holding out some like magical training plan 
were like, we don't want to give access to the general public, like the secret plan, like most of the plan is still going to be very similar to the pre-built plan. It's just going to be catered more specifically to the individual athletes, you know, needs and wants and, um, schedule and things like that. And then, it, and then, like you said, there's, there's the adjustment, uh, aspect as well. Um, but don't like if, you know, if you get into a relationship with a coach, whether it's one of our ignition coaches or with another coaching company or an independent coach, don't miss out on the value of the coach as a resource themselves. And if they're not giving you access to themselves for that additional knowledge, um, then you're missing out on the most valuable part of that coaching relationship. Um, cause that's really where a lot of the, the benefits are going to come in. It's not going to be like secret workouts that they're having you do. Yeah. Um, so the other aspect here that I think is kind of important and sort of, get, you know, aligns here is how, how should athletes go about selecting a coach? And maybe we can mm-hmm. talk Dylan, or maybe you can provide some context for how ignition goes about pairing athletes with specific coaches. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we get a, uh, when we get an athlete that wants coaching, we try, we have them fill out a, an athlete form that kind of gives us an idea of what their goals are on the bike, what their goals are off the bike what you know, uh, a variety of different questions, um, to just kind of get a sense of, of, you know, the, the kind of person they are and the kind of athlete they are. And then we'll, we'll try to match them with an appropriate coach. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, if this is a person that is, you know, doing crit racing, we'll probably give them to one of our, you know, crit racers who knows a lot about crit racing. And we have, we have, we've got plenty of coaches that, uh, specialize in that versus if it's a cyclocross racer, we got plenty of coaches that specialize in cyclocross versus if it's a hundred mile mountain bike racer. Um, and then we also might just, just look at, um, you know, things like age, uh, or, or kind of, um, you know, where, where they're at in their, you know, in their training, if that makes sense. Um, like, are they a beginner cyclist? Are they a more advanced cyclist? Uh, are they more data driven? Um, that sort of thing and try to match them with, you know, a coach that probably has those similar characteristics, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And the, the important aspect of pairing an athlete with a coach who has similar background experience, like with, within the discipline that they're targeting, the important aspect there goes back to the athlete's knowledge as a resource. It's not that, you know, I couldn't prepare an athlete to race crits physically. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I only have a couple years of road race experience. So, you know, once an yep. athlete gets to a certain level, you know, if they're graduating into the pro one, two race in, in a, you know, field in a crit, like I might not have as good of advice for them on how to navigate the Peloton as, you know, say Drew Dillman or Cade Bickmore, you know, two of our more road, uh, focused athletes, or, I mean, coaches, um, sure. you know, so, and that's where, that's where the, the coach as a resource for their knowledge really comes in handy. You know, how do you, it's one thing to prepare for the race physically, but how do you, how do you handle yourself mentally in the race? How do you, uh, you know, plan out your strategy for, uh, whether it's, you know, tactics within the race or nutrition plan, um, you know, like all the, like all the other aspects that go into a race performance beyond just the physical preparedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anything else to add, Caitlin? 
Um, I mean, I think we covered all the the big points, the big reasons to hire a coach. I mean, your your static training plan isn't going to be able to give you that. And, you know, us talking about being sick, I couldn't imagine buying one of these plans, being super excited to start it, and then boom, you get sick. Or you're two weeks mm-hmm. deep into it, and then you get sick. You know, you're going to have to maneuver that on your own. What do you do? Do you jump back in where the plan left off? Do you go backwards? If you have a coach, they're going to be able to walk you through the best option for, for you specifically. So, Right. Yeah. And, and like for Mark specifically here, if you're listening, um, which hopefully you are, you know, if you're putting in five to 600 training hours annually, like that's a lot of time. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're hitting a plateau and you're still putting in that much volume, then I would say something needs to be changed in your plan. And that might be even reducing hours. Like, like a, a coach might come in and say, Hey, let's, let's take one to two hours off per week so that we can be more fresh for these, you know, hit workouts, um, you know, or rearrange your days so that your high intensity workouts come after a rest day and you're really able to, you know, hit higher peaks, you know, something like that, um, which, you know, a training plan, if you're, if you're, especially if you're following the same training plans year after year, you know, you're kind of just getting into, uh, you know, a plateau phase probably because your body's just used to doing the same thing over and over again. It has to be introduced to new stimulus at some point for it to, uh, you know, to force your body to make adaptations. So Mark, I would say definitely seem like a candidate for coaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sweet. Well, that we, we, that was a bunch of questions. Um, I think we've only got two more in the queue. So, uh, we'll, we'll have to, we'll save those for next week. Uh, if anyone else has any questions, feel free to send those in and we can try and answer it. Once we run out of these questions, we are going to do an episode on marginal versus maximal gains. Um, and that'll be We're a gonna, higher. Uh, so, oh, so, I forgot are we going to try to, are we going to try to rank order, order every potential gain from the, the most marginal to the, the, you know, the least marginal or most maximal? Is that what we're that's, doing? That's the plan. Yep. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll Sounds be a fun good. one. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we'll talk yeah. about we'll talk about bottom bracket grease in that one for sure. <laughs> I'm sure it'll come up. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We'll uh, we'll catch you next week. See ya. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch y'all soon. Let's go!
I've never driven a rally car before, but I'd imagine there are a lot of similarities between racing rally cars and racing bikes. Both involve speed, skill, and suspense. But one big difference is the navigator. The navigator's job is to communicate with the driver what turns are coming up, the severity of those turns, and any obstacles to look out for on course. With the help of the navigator, the driver goes faster. As athletes, we too need a navigator. This is where the coach comes into the picture. Like the navigator, the coach helps guide the athlete along the right path. When it's all said and done, the coach helps the athlete go faster. To take the analogy one step further, I'd bet the best navigators are those who used to drive themselves. Because of their own experience behind the wheel, they're better equipped to help the driver. This is what Ignition Coach Co. is all about. All of our coaches are elite level racers, and that makes them better coaches. They know how to train, how to prep, how to win, how to lose, and how to stay focused through it all because they are in the midst of that pursuit right now. Here at Ignition Coach Co., we believe that coaching and racing go hand in hand, and it's our goal to fuse those two things together. We'd love to connect you with one of our coaches. Sign up for a free consultation today. Ignition Coach Co. Developing coaches, connecting athletes.